Well, let me invite you this morning to take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to Luke's Gospel. We are in Luke's Gospel, chapter 8. One to twenty-one as we re-enter Luke's Gospel. Luke's Gospel, chapter eight, beginning in verse one. Soon afterwards, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others, who provided for them out of their means. And when a great crowd was gathering, and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away, because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, He said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Take care, then, how you hear. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together this morning. Father, now we come. And our prayer would be the same as the hymn we have just sung, Would You Dissolve Our Frozen Hearts? Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear? For we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we re-enter 
the world of Dr. Luke and his theological biography of Jesus Christ. And since we spent the last 10 weeks in the Psalms, let's take a moment this morning and remind ourselves of the melodic line for Luke's gospel. Here it is. The gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for everyone. Now, as we've seen Luke unpack that for us, he wants to make sure that we understand all that is included when we speak of the gospel. The word gospel means good news, and what's going on is a declaration of good news. And that declaration is a kingdom announcement. And that king rules a particular kingdom. There is The kingdom has a king. It's Jesus. Furthermore, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you're male or female. It doesn't matter if you're Jew, Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're slave, free. This gospel is for everyone. Well, this morning, we're going to see that although the gospel is for everyone, everyone is not for the gospel. Let me say that again. This morning, we're going to see that although the gospel is for everyone, everyone is not for the gospel. In other words, despite the proclamation of this wonderfully good news, there will be those who will opt out of citizenship in God's kingdom. Well, how do you know them? How can you tell? Since this citizenship is open to everyone, is there some sort of identifying factor that will help us discern who is living their life under the kingship of Jesus Christ, and who isn't? Well, that's the question we want to answer this morning as we look to Luke 8, as we look to this wonderful parable that Jesus gives us. And on page 5 in your bulletin, and also on the screen in front of you, you see an outline for our time together this morning. And we want to begin then with the big idea. In one sentence, here's what the sermon is about. How you hear and respond to the word of God determines everything. How you hear and respond to the word of God determines everything. Now, I almost made the title the big idea, but it's a little too cute. Uh, it's it's a li- It's just a little too... Yeah, keep your eyes on your ears. Yes, great title, horrible big idea. But that's what's going on. Jesus wants, Jesus is telling us that how we hear and how we respond to the word of God determines everything about us as whether we live in his kingdom or we don't. Three points we want to make this morning. The first one is this. Uh, well, let's talk about people of the book. Let's talk about people of the book. Luke bookends this particular section in his gospel by telling us about the kind of people who are following Jesus and the kind of people who are in his kingdom. And Luke has emphasized, as we've made our way through the gospel, he's emphasized not just the fact that there are women with him and not just the fact that there are poor people who are with him, but even those who the world would consider to be non-people have had a place and had a role, and we've been told that they are a part of this kingdom. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that Luke begins chapter 8 by telling us that Jesus is going, and his particular ministry is he's bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. So he's proclaiming, he's preaching. 
And as he's preaching, note who's with him. We're told the 12, but then in verse 2, he goes on to tell us it isn't just the 12 apostles who are a part of that sort of core group of people who are traveling with and following the Lord Jesus Christ. There are women with them as well. I love the words of one commentator. He was uh, helping us sort of understand the tension that's here. While the women were not named among the apostles, they are still named. Can they function as apostles? No. But they are still named in Luke's gospel. Now, as we think about the bookend that Luke has given us, as we think about these conversations about who it is that's following Jesus and who it is that's a part of the people of God. We need to note that Jesus is creating a people who are drawn to his word. It's not the way they vote. It's not their political affiliation. It's not their ethnicity. It's not their sexual orientation. What draws them together is the word of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we think about this beginning and the end, as we think about the top and the tail of what's going on in Luke chapter 8, we need to think about the fact that Luke is drawing our attention to who these followers were and now who they are. In verses 1 to 3, he tells us who they were. And then in verse 18, excuse me, in verse 21, he tells us who they are. Now, one of the people that we want to sort of put a pin in and make a note of is, in verse 2, Mary Magdalene is noted. And Luke tells us that she had seven demons who had been cast out of her. And sometimes, at least in tradition, Mary Magdalene is also identified as a woman who was a prostitute. But there's nothing in the text to suggest that Mary Magdalene was ever a prostitute. I love the way one commentator put it. Uh, seven demons is bondage enough without laying more on her. It's true. If you've had seven demons cast out of you, you've, you've you got plenty, right? We don't, we don't need to put any more on Mary Magdalene to make her story any more compelling or, or any more convincing. So what we see in verses 1 to 3 are those who have familiar bonds of gratitude. Jesus has brought the good news of the kingdom. And in verse 2, we're told that they had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. And so they're following Jesus not because they have to. They're following Jesus because they want to. They're following him out of gratitude. Gratitude is a really powerful emotion, isn't it? It's a very powerful motivator. I have a, a dear friend, an old friend, um, who when I, I, I was, as we're thinking about some of you going away to college, I, it was a long, long time ago. Uh, I think I rode a dinosaur uh, to, to get to Indiana when I went 35 years ago. Uh, but I went to college and I was, I, was, I was a good athlete. I was not a good student. But I, had, I have a very dear friend who invested in me. And as I later said, he took an athlete with an aversion to academics 
and introduced him to the life of the mind. So we have remained friends, not, again, not because we have to and not because uh, I feel compelled out of any sense of guilt, but we're friends out of a sense of gratitude. He helped me. He helped me become what the Lord would have me be. Friends, the women are with Jesus, not because they have to. And Luke isn't trying to go out of his way to say, see, look, Jesus, uh, some commentators like to say this proves Jesus is a feminist. Well, no. It proves that people were grateful. And they followed him because he had healed them, both of evil spirits and infirmities. In good families, gratitude is the thing that draws us together. We're grateful for one another. We're thankful for one another. We love one another. And these folks are now not only subjects who live in God's kingdom, under God's king, but they're now the family. Jesus makes that point specifically then in verse 21. He's told that his mother and his brothers are standing outside desiring to see him. Now, the other gospel writers tell us they're a little worried about Jesus because he's walking around and he's healing people and he's casting out demons and he's making lots of really lofty, grandiose statements, the kind of statements that tend to catch Rome's attention. And that's never a good thing. And so to try to diffuse it, they want to come. And their concern, uh, Matthew tells us, is that Jesus must have a demon. He must be out of his mind. I mean, why would you knowingly make the kinds of statements that he's making? Why would you ever want to draw Rome's attention to yourself? But in verse 21, Jesus says, no, hey, let me tell you about who my mother and my brothers are. Let me tell you who my family is. My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Friends, it isn't just about being a subject, living under the kingship of King Jesus in God's kingdom. It's also about being a part of God's family. It's about being a brother and a sister to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what the word of God does. That's what the word of God brings. As we read in Ezekiel chapter 37, we were dead. In fact, we were so dead, we were nothing other than dry bones. But the spirit of God through the word of God brings life to God's people. And those people then, they don't merely exist as an army, as Ezekiel tells us. But Jesus says, no, not only are they an army, they're my family. These are my people. These are people of the book. One commentator put it this way. He said, verses 1 to 3 and then 19 to 21 depict a twofold miracle. Jesus kidnaps people from Satan's landfill and then makes them part of his family. Jesus kidnaps people from Satan's landfill and then makes them a part of his family. So let me ask you a question this morning. You know, those of us who are in families, 
uh, you know there are certain family resemblances that you can't get away from. And I don't mean the fact that you have, uh, like Harry Potter, he has his mother's eyes. I don't mean just sort of physical characteristics and physical resemblances. No, there's the way you talk, the way you treat other people, the way you react to certain situations. So I wonder this morning, if you are indeed a part of Jesus' family, are you more and more resembling the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you growing in grace? Does the word of God, that word that creates God's people, does the word of God dwell within you more deeply than it did, say, last year? The Apostle Paul tells us of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Friends, it's one thing to have a sense of who you were. It's one thing to go, yes, isn't it wonderful? We've been adopted into God's family. But understand, when you're in a family, the expectation is that there will be a family resemblance. That we will more and more resemble the Lord Jesus Christ. So do you? Do you? Secondly, we see a means of judgment. We see a means of judgment. So this great crowd is gathered around Jesus, and Jesus, we're told in verse 4, tells them a parable. He tells them a story. Now, scholars, some scholars like to go, oh, isn't this great? Jesus avoided any kind of technical theological language. Jesus avoided these kinds of deep biblical or theological discussions. Jesus uses parables because everybody loves a good story, right? Who doesn't love a good story? A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. It's a great story. Jesus doesn't need deep theological language when a good story will do. I love the words of Martin Luther when he was considering these things. Luther simply said, this is rubbish. This is rubbish. Jesus uses the parables as a means of judgment. He uses them as a means of discerning. The parables help us know who is living in the kingdom of King Jesus and who is not. It separates God's people from those who are not God's people. Now, if that sounds a bit harsh, consider what the text itself tells us. Three times we have an exhortation from the Lord Jesus. Look at verse 8. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. Look again at verse 10. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. And then again, look at verse 18. Take care then how you hear, for to the one, for to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. Jesus uses the parables not because everyone loves a good story. 
But Jesus uses the parables as a means of discerning. Those who understand what's being said are a part of his kingdom. Those who do not are not. Now, it's interesting if you have, if your Bible gives you cross references, then you probably know that in verse 10, Jesus is actually quoting from the prophet Isaiah. So keep your finger in Luke chapter 8, but turn with me, if you would, to the book of Isaiah chapter 6. The book of Isaiah chapter 6. Now, let's sort of set the scene for what's going on. It's, this is one of the great visions of God in the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 6, Uzziah has died. The king is dead. Now everybody's going, what in the world is going to happen? And so what happens? Isaiah goes to the temple and there he sees the Lord sitting upon a throne. And he gives us this wonderful vision that he has in the temple of seeing Yahweh. Now, verse 8 is where we want to pick up in Isaiah chapter 6. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. Now, if you've ever had uh, the good fortune to be at a missionary commissioning service, there's a good chance they probably use this particular text. Who's going to go? Who will we send? Here am I, send me. And isn't it great? Here are all our missionaries we're going to send out. And they're going to go. And they're, they're willing to take the gospel to people who have never heard the gospel before. And that's wonderful. But that's not what this text is about. Let's keep reading. Verse 9. And he said, go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and under, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitants and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, there will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is in its stump. Now, there's a lot going on here, but let's understand what's happening. God is saying to Isaiah, yes, I'm going to send you. I'm going to send you to preach my word, but understand this. The word that you preach is going to be a word of judgment. You're going to preach, but they're not going to hear. And they're not going to understand. And they're not going to see. And they're not going to perceive. And Isaiah is going, oh, okay, wait a minute. I don't think that's what I, what I, what I was signing up for. right? I want to sign up for the ministry for where when I preach, everybody hears, everybody repents. We all stand around the campfire, sing Kumbaya, and then sing Friends are Friends Forever. right? Because that's the kind of ministry that I want to have. And God's saying no. And Jeremiah is going, okay, wait a minute. How long is this going to happen? And God says, until judgment comes upon Israel. Until the Assyrians come and the place is laid waste. Friends, when Jesus quotes Isaiah chapter 6, as he's telling us about parables, and he's telling us about what the parables do, we need to understand that the word then comes not merely as a word that gives life. It does. 
But also to understand that when these parables come, they come as a means of judgment. So I wonder this morning, does that change how you ought to think when you come to hear God's word? Now, I realize there are challenges, right? If you, if you wanted to pick an effective means of communication, uh, preaching would not be it. Preaching is probably the most ineffective means of communication, right? I mean, where are the pictures? Where's the stuff? Where's the teachers? No, you, you, this is just a monologue is not a great way to do this. And yet, time and time again, the Bible tells us to preach, and it tells us to preach, and it tells us to preach. But it also carries with it then not just a command to those who preach, but it also carries with it a command for those who hear. See, friends, when you come week by week and you get exposed to the Word of God and you sit under the Word of God, I know the tendency, because I have this tendency too, the tendency is to come and to want to sit in judgment over the word. I don't know if I believe that or not. Yeah, the Bible says some stuff about women or about sexual orientation. or Yeah. I... But understand that what you think is the case is actually reversed. You don't sit in judgment over the Word of God. The Word of God sits in judgment over you. That's what Jesus wants his apostles, wants his followers to understand. To them it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for those who are outside of the kingdom, these parables are a means of judgment. Now I know sometimes too that gets a little weird because people go, "Hey, wait a minute! Uh, I don't, I don't know. I'm not really comfortable with the idea of a God who judges people. I like the notion of a God who loves everybody, but a God who judges. I'm, I'm not sure that I signed up for that. Well, understand that when the Bible speaks of God's judgment, the most normal way and the most usual way that it speaks of it is that God simply gives you over. It's not that God takes you and makes you someone you never wanted to be. No, instead God gives you over. So look at verse 12, if you would. Uh, the ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they will not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it. Joy, excuse me, but these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. Verse 14, and as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. See, God isn't taking them and making them something that they weren't before. No, he's simply giving them over. These are people who were inclined towards the cares and riches and pleasures of life. And so what does God do? He simply gives them over to them. Thirdly, we need to be very careful about how you hear. 
Be very careful about how you hear. It's interesting, isn't it? Every time you sort of look at a parable and every time, uh, or at least I, every time I, I do the, the preparation to get ready to preach, I learn something new. And I don't know if this was something I had forgotten or just never read, but we now understand that in the ancient Near East, this is how people would farm. Uh, you would take your seed and you would just scatter it everywhere. Like if it was in the confines of property that was yours, you just scattered it everywhere. Then in the area that was the field, you would go back and you would plow. So when Jesus tells the parable, the parable about how some goes on the path and some lands on the rocks and some lands among the thorns and the weeds, well, it wasn't like uh, the ground wasn't properly prepared and it wasn't like the thorns and the weeds grew up and the farmer did nothing about it. No, you would just scatter seed everywhere. And then you would go in and you would till, you would plow the place that was your actual field. So three of the four then of these kinds of soil aren't good. Three of the four end disastrously. They might start well, but they end disastrously. And we need to heed the warning that's here. Hearing once is not enough. We need to hear, and we need to keep hearing. Look at verse 15. And as for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. There are some words there that we don't really like. Hold fast and patience. Those are words and concepts that aren't high on the list of attributes that Americans think they ought to have. No, we don't really have patience. We, we want that fruit and we want it now. And we can hold on to things for a time, but the idea that we're going to hold fast to them with an honest and good heart and that we're going to be patient as we do so. This is, this is not the kind of instant results that we expect in American society. Over the past year or so, I've become aware of something uh, that didn't really get talked about much uh, when I was in seminary, but it's this thing called dialogical worship. And dialogical worship says that each and every week when God's people gather together, what's really going on is not a monologue in which uh, certain people are allowed to stand in front and certain people then talk or sing or pray or whatever. And we sit and listen and we are, in essence, consumers of what's being offered. No, dialogical worship says that each and every week there's a dialogue going on between God through his ordained servants with his people. It's a conversation. Dialogical worship then means that each and every week, men and women, boys and girls, are called upon to examine their own lives through the lens of God's word. Friends, you're not just, you're not just here to listen. You're not just here to be entertained. You're not just here to consume. No, you're here understanding that you need to be very careful about how you hear 
Because this word calls us to things that we don't normally want to do on our own. And three out of the four examples in the parable of the soils end poorly. My guess would be that if we went around this morning and I asked you for names, we could all talk about people we knew who had started well in the Christian faith or they had started well in their walk with Jesus, but for whatever reason over the years now have nothing to do with Jesus and the gospel. And so each and every week when we come, we are dialoguing with God. We're hearing from him through his word, through his servants. And friends, that requires something of you. You're not sitting in judgment of the word that you hear. Rather, you understand that word is judging you. You're taking stock of your own life. You're taking stock of your own walk with Jesus. And it's happening week by week by week by week by week. In a few moments, we're going to celebrate together the Lord's Supper. And as we do, we do so understanding that it's a family meal. That we're coming because we who were once God's enemies have now been made sons and daughters of God. But it isn't just a family meal. It's like any good meal, something that's designed to strengthen us. And so as we come week by week and so as we engage in dialogical worship, we need to understand and we need to hear what it is that God is saying to us through his table. What he's saying is this. I am your God, and you are my people. I sent my son not just to die in your place, but I sent my son to dwell within you and to strengthen you and to encourage you. And so this morning, friends, we conclude our conversation with God. We, include, we conclude this dialogue. By God saying to us, come and eat. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, the grace that is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the way in which you have provided for us. And we pray, Lord, that as we think about this wonderful dialogue that's happening week after week after week, that, Lord, you would indeed give us ears to hear. That, Father, we would understand that we do not sit in judgment over your word, but rather your word sits in judgment over us. And we pray all these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.